Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom, and welcome to the Land of Israel Network. And shalom, and welcome to Pre-Pesach Madness. I just basically landed uh, from the Four Capital City Tour, uh, where we were in Miami and Boca, Washington, D.C. for APAC, New York City for a few meetings, and then Los Angeles for the disputation with J Street, which is on today's show. You're going to hear the whole debate between myself and the folks at J Street uh, in Temple Emanuel of uh, Beverly Hills. I just love saying Beverly Hills. It's just too much fun to say Beverly Hills. I am right now in the kitchen of my house, but it's more right to say that I'm in Malka Fleischer's kitchen. Malka Fleischer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ishai. Here we are, pre-Pesach, and... I can't stop what I'm doing even to do this show. So you're going to do you're going to stop what you're doing to do your show with me. So here we are. That's right. Absolutely. We, we got to get ready for Pesach. Mark, on today's show, you're going to you're going to hear the full audio of uh, the uh, debate that I had with J Street. Uh, and basically, this is a little bit of a recap of the show of the last few weeks where I was um, on the road while you were holding down the fort here in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. And thank God, I want to thank the good people at WhatsApp, uh, the app that helps you connect between worlds. And uh, if you're not on WhatsApp, you must not have a lot of friends in Israel because everybody here is on WhatsApp. And now that WhatsApp has also introduced uh, the um, additional ability to have video conferencing calls, it, it really makes all the difference. That's what kept me really together with you here in, in Yerushalayim. Tell me what you're doing right now, Malka. I'm making some eggs because every single member of our nuclear family is home because it's pre-Pesach. So all the teachers also want to clean their house for Pesach. So the school system is non-existent right now. So I'm making some scrambled eggs and toast and vegetables for everybody this morning so that everyone can have a lot of strength. Uh, I'm debating whether I'm going to force my kids to work hard today and help me clean or whether I'm just going to send them all outside. These are the thoughts that are going through my mind right now. <laughs> very good Malka very good okay fair enough and uh, I want to tell you one thing about Pesach Malka which is uh, it probably is one of your favorite holidays isn't it because your birthday's close by to it and also it's got a lot of uh, interesting culinary aspects of it as well is it one of your favorite holidays yeah but I would not say that either of those are the reason that Pesach is one of my favorite holidays it's true that my birthday is near Pesach but uh, as I'm getting older, maybe that's a reason I like Pesach less. Anyway, but, um, and yeah, I like the matzah and stuff like that. But I, I, you know, Pesach was one of the things that we did very solidly in my family when I was growing up. And I didn't grow up in a religious family. But like so many Jews, um, my parents really put time and effort into the Passover Seder. And my mom had her foods that she made every year, including these incredible sweet carrots that I have never been able to successfully replicate. You know, brisket, matzo ball soup. I still think that matzo balls out of a box are by far the tastiest of the matzo balls, more so than the homemade matzo balls. Yeah, I love Pesach. You know, it's a it's a family holiday. It's a very family holiday. The, the Passover Seder, like you say every year, Ishai, is pretty weird. It's not so cohesive in a... Meaning to say, if I were writing it myself, I may not have written it that way. But um, I think that says more about 
the fact that I maybe haven't understood it all the way as deeply as necessarily I could. But in in any event, it's a time to talk about to get to get together to talk about Yitziat Mitzrayim, the the Jewish people coming out of Egypt, which seems like a singular event, but really we allude to it every week. Um, we really are, uh, allude to it every day, but certainly as a family, we allude to it together every week when we say Kiddush um, at the Shabbat table. And it's one of those things that that I'm not sure everybody even understands in a very cognitive way why they connect to it. But I think that most Jews really, really connect to this experience, probably because, as they say, all of our souls, um, all you know, all the, the souls of the Jewish people receive the, the Torah at Sinai, and therefore we're part of the Exodus experience um, from Egypt. And so I make it my policy to buy tons and tons and tons of little gifts like one shekel gifts and I hand them out to the children over the course of the night I figure out how to connect them yeah uh, what did I say yeah Passover Seder night right I hand it over out and um, it keeps them excited and you know we we reward them for asking questions and you know we got the manishtana and it's just um, you know I think there's the feeling in the air also that the the Passover Seder is really connected to the future also we, as Jewish people, used to make the Korban Pesach, the Passover offering, and all over the mountains here in our area, uh, here in the Holy Basin, there would be Jews sitting around their, their pieces of offering, eating together um, in their um, thanks, I guess, for the, for the uh, redemption that we had in, in, uh, out of Egypt. Um, but it also alludes to the future because we're supposed to return to those offerings we're supposed to return to the Passover offering and gathering around and remembering and it's supposed to be a thing that we do as Jewish people really uh, throughout history including future history history that hasn't been recorded yet so I think that there's uh, for a lot of us a connection to the future temple to the the ultimate Jewish commonwealth um, you know a common we have we've already gotten started on it but it hasn't reached its uh, full potential yet so yeah, I love Pesach. Yeah, I love Pesach. Absolutely, uh, Malka. I, th- I think also another simple way to understand that, that it's future bound is the, the focus on the children, the focus on the children, as you were saying. Speaking of children and matzah, first thing, speaking of parents, you mentioned your family. I want to say hi to Grandpa Walter, who's a faithful uh, listener to the show and also, of course, a great grandpa. Thank you so much, uh, Grandpa Walter. God bless you uh, out there in Florida. Be strong. We love you very much. I also want to say, speaking of family, that yesterday I got to take... Leah, uh, my our daughter, uh, on a uh, journey into the past and into the future to matzah baking. We we went to matzah baking. I bake matzah every year. In fact, I'm the baker. I'm I'm, I'm um, the person in charge of the oven. This year, by the way, differently than other years, we had two bakers together at the same time. We were a team. I was putting in, and Jonathan Rosner was taking out, and it worked, went very very amazingly. It went much better than other years, although he, he tends to do it a little bit lighter, though kosher, absolutely kosher, and the rabbi was there, and he liked it just fine, uh, but he tends to have it a little bit lighter, so don't be surprised if some of the matzahs are a little bit more white uh, than, than, than with black blackness. You've, you've activated my Hungarian. You've, activa- you've activated the Hungarian. Is it going to be okay? 
It's going to be totally okay. When she says Hungarian, she means nerves and uptightness and and uh, and guilt and and what when paprika, those are the spices. Um, they're totally fine. As I as I said within my comments, and I'll re- repeat here again, is that the rabbi was there and was checking them, and they are great. It happens to be that I like them a little bit more burnt, uh, but but in any case, well, I like them lighter. I like them lighter. So awesome. I, I think they'll probably taste better. But also, Leah Batzion was up from seven p.m. to 1 a.m. Uh, together with me, uh, matzo baking and all that entails. And it was just an incredible, incredible, you know, she got to really see what it means to bake matzo the way our people have been doing it for a very long time. And the matzo itself has some kind of data on it. It has some kind of, it's, a, it's really a disc. It's a hard disc, except the computer is our stomach and our, and our genes and our bodies. And it just activates a knowledge of the Exodus night, of the Exodus night, and, and also what you were saying, which is ultimate redemption. Malka, speaking of redemption, also it was great to come back home. Speaking of, of coming back home, it was great to see Jack and Lillian at dinner in New York City, who send you their regards. And a lot of other people have been uh, connecting to me recently. I got to see our good friend Andy, Andy Wells, and a lot more people around, uh, you know, in Los Angeles and in Washington, D.C., our good friend Joe Sabag. I got to see him, and many, many others. Um, I've talked about uh, the APAC experience on the show. Los Angeles is, is an amazing place. Lots of people there, lots of Jews, lots of folks who want to connect to the story of Israel. A little bit untapped, but, but Los Angeles, which is, in a sense, the farthest place from Eretz Israel, in that it is the ultimate west. Maybe Australia is a little bit uh, farther away. Uh, the you know Yehuda Levi used to say he used to write the famous poem. It said "Libi ba Mizrach, Libi ba Mizrach My heart is in uh, the east, but my heart, but I am physically in the ultimate west. Well, the ultimate west is not Spain, like like uh, like Yehuda Levi was at, but it's actually California. But it's closer than ever before with a direct flight. I took a 15-hour flight from Los Angeles back home. It's not recommended, you know, for a daily thing. It is a it is a hard uh, it is a hard slog out there if you're not in business or in first class. I was in economy plus, uh, which was uh, uh, you know good enough to to make it. But Baruch Hashem was able to come back home, and I got I got to tell you, coming back to Eretz Israel, it's it's like it's like coming into color. It's like although L.A. is very colorful, there's nothing like coming back to Israel and Yerushalayim. It's like the flowers are more colorful, the, the, the people are more colorful. There's such a burst of life, and I've just been so gratified to, to get back to uh, the land of Israel as you are listening to the Land of Israel Network. And I've been very gratified to come back home to you, Malka, and the family. And uh, the rest of the show is dedicated today uh, to the J Street debate. You're going to hear me discussing the issues of the quote-unquote occupation, Jewish people in, the, in Judea and Samaria. But I really think that what I was trying to do in this debate, and watch, listen for this, what I was really trying to do, what I was really trying to do is uh, actually remind people that Zionism is still alive and well and that they don't have to resort to negativity uh, and criticizing Israel to be Zionistic. They could still have that old Zionistic spirit, that a strong Israel is okay, that we have every right to be strong, that we have a history uh, of being persecuted, we have a right to be strong now, that we're the small, uh, tiny entity in this region, uh, and, and that we have to be strong, and that there's nothing wrong with being strong, and that's actually what this region respects, that's the way to move forward. Um, and, and also a kind of a more 
natural connection to our tradition, to our Bible, without even feeling guilt about that. You don't have to analyze everything. I don't know if you understand God or don't understand God. It's okay to be like, I'm Jewish. I like Jewish things. So for all those reasons, those are all permissions to, to get back to classic Zionism. The beauty of the land of Israel, the smallness of the land of Israel, the, the right of our, of our people to be in this land, uh, the, the big jihad against us, and just plain old Jewish tradition, which is just fine. And I was trying to give excuses or permissions for people to get back to a normal feeling of Zionism without succumbing to that J Street of very dark negativity. It's almost like the only way that they can give themselves permission to actually love Israel is through criticizing it. Do you know what I'm saying, Malka? That's like a nice way to put it i i don't know i don't know you know what i mean like i think that there's i think that there's a few types in the j street movement i would like to think that the majority of those people are the people who really want to love israel but feel some kind of a guilty feeling there's a part of me that thinks though that there's a group of people in there who want to hate israel but feel guilty to not show that they like it a little bit so you're saying the other way you're saying basically they actually want to hate Israel, but they do it through a mask of liking it a little bit. Not not only just a mask, meaning to say not only that sinister, but also like they have their complexity. Let's say that they're Jewish people who actually feel gross about Israel or maybe even gross about Judaism. But because of their actual connection to other Jews and to being in the Jewish world, etc., they feel that they can't just chuck Israel. They can't just say, ew, gross, I hate Israel. They have to, like, be on board a little bit. So, um, in regard to your debate, I tend to think, I mean, I don't know Mr. Elsner personally, and I... Alan Elsner from J Street, who's the special uh, advisor to the director of J Street. Right. I, I don't know him, and to be really honest, I haven't read a lot of his work, and I don't follow his career. Um, based on the debate, if I ha- if I were just watching uh, Nixon JFK on TV, right? If I were just watching, and by the way, I just want to say that anyone who's going to hear this debate and wants to like watch it again or prefers to see it, so it's on Yishai's Facebook page. Um, you can go find Yishai Fleischer Facebook page, and you can watch it there also. Um, There's actually a much better link um, at the Temple Emmanuel uh, site. It's much much better than my uh, live stream. Uh, and I'll be putting that up as well and sending and putting up on YouTube and also sending it uh, on my email. And please sign up for my emails at yishaifleischer.com. Um And I'll, I'll be sending it out actually on my email on thelandofisrael.com as well. But go ahead, Malka, what's your point? My point is that based on what I saw, I would tend to think that Mr. Elsner does want an Israel. He does think that Israel is an important mm-hmm. thing. Um, I think that his concept of Israel is is impractical impractical on the existential level, meaning to say that it can't work and us survive. Um, But even still, I I did get like a little bit of the warm fuzzies from him, which made me happy because I don't like bad guys. (laughs) So basically, like, he seems like a good guy with horrible, horrible ideas. And frankly, the the J Street Street, um, organization is very suspicious to me. Um, and I think to a lot of other people too, because even though they espouse themselves to be pro-Israel, a lot of times their work ends up being very, very anti-Israel. And so then one wonders kind of about the, the core, the core purpose of that organization. But anyway, um, I thought that the debate was very, very interesting. I watched the whole thing. I am 
related to you. So that is part of it. But I also found it very, very interesting. Um, you two presented in different ways. He came off as very, um, to me, very kind of like intellectual, critical in a disconnected panel kind of way and you came off as a person who has skin in the game and has what to lose and has what to win and is personally invested he did not seem very personally invested um one thing that surprised me was that and I don't know why this surprises me but it always manages to surprise me every time is that people on a high level will say untruths or purposefully leave out truths in order to win an argument I find this to be so dishonest and scary it's like I don't I don't operate that way so for me that is like a it's always a surprise um but I was very surprised and people will be able to see for themselves where you reinserted facts into the discussion that really changed the perspective on what Israel is doing um I appreciated a lot of your anecdotes from the street because I think that those are much realer than the sort of European, um, far away approach to the Middle East. And I recommend people watch and listen. All right, folks, you hear in the background, it's Malka's Kitchen. And uh, Malka's kids uh, are out there asking her for attention uh, and for all little things. Just uh, not a lot of time can she be left alone, but that's, that's the that's the lot of a, of a Jewish mom here in the land of Israel. So you are listening to pre-Pesach Feelings in action uh, from Yerushalayim. I want to thank you very much for being with me. So uh, in just a moment, I'm going to be uh, putting on that debate. You can hear it in full. I definitely want to hear from you. So write me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com, yishai at thelandofisrael.com. For Pesach, though, I want you to know, at full disclosure, we're actually going to be at Hotel Neve Ilan. Uh, I'm going to be the the rabbi there, the kind of uh, Seder leader, and and, uh, otherwise take care of the, the guests there. Uh, and this is through Eddie's Travel. So check out Eddie's Travel, Eddie's Kosher Travel, a, a great organization that gets you to amazing places around the world and certainly here in the land of Israel uh, on a kosher cruise and a kosher tour. And uh, I'm very excited for Pesach. I'm very excited for this incredible pilgrimage holiday. And I hope that you are pilgrimaging your way to Yerushalayim three times a year. You're commanded to come to the land of Israel if you're Jewish. And if you're not Jewish, on the Sukkot holiday, you're all invited. You're all invited to come to Jerusalem to pilgrimage. We're all part of a pilgrimage of coming closer to God, coming closer to the land of Israel. Malka Fleischer, I'm jumping back in the kitchen to say thanks a lot. And Chag Sameach and Shabbat Shalom. Chag Sameach, everybody. We hope to see you next year in Jerusalem. Amen. Next year in Yerushalayim and this year at the Land of Israel Network. Here's my debate with Alan Elsner in Temple Emmanuel, Beverly Hills, J Street versus Hebron, talking about the future of Israel. I want to welcome everybody to the third installation of our Barrett Conversation series here at Temple Emmanuel of Beverly Hills. I also want to thank J Street, and I want to thank the Jewish community of Hebron for making tonight's conversation possible about competing visions for Israel. There's a reason why there are so many of you who are in this room tonight. It is because we are hungry for difficult conversations. We are hungry for nuance. We are hungry for thoughtful engagement. And I want to acknowledge that your presence here tonight is a countercultural act. We have been living in an environment that has been increasingly polarized. 
where people speak to echo chambers and to their political silos, where we have lost our resilience to hear competing ideas with which we disagree. And tonight, here at Temple Emmanuel, we are changing that culture. We are here to engage in difficult conversation. If you came for fireworks, or if you came for a yelling debate, you will be disappointed. Tonight, our speakers, Ishai Fleischer and Alan Elsner, are two men who could not disagree more, but they are here to engage and to model machloket l'shem shemaim, disagreement for the sake of heaven. Both men care deeply about the future of Israel, about our Jewish homeland, and I don't anticipate that they are going to change anybody's mind tonight, but they are going to have you walk away with a more informed perspective on whatever it is you may already believe. The supporters of this lecture series, Larry Behrendt, his wife Stephanie Hammer, their family foundation has supported programming like this at Temple Emmanuel for the past 16 years, and they want to remind all of us that we have invited these speakers into our home and that we should be treating them as honored guests. In order to do that, there are two ground rules that I want to set in terms of the tone of the conversation tonight. Number one, I ask that everybody bring a spirit of curiosity and of resilience. You are going to hear things that are incredibly difficult no matter where you are on the political spectrum. Take it in, listen hard, and if it becomes too difficult for you to stay in your seat, for you to listen, we encourage you to take a deep breath, to step outside, and to come back in when you are ready. And number two, we ask that you refrain from applause, from booing, from any kind of outburst whatsoever. This is a conversation. And cheering and jeering, it changes the tone of it from a conversation into a competition. And I'm going to remind you, it only takes one person to destroy a learning environment for everyone. So for the group's sake, I ask that we refrain from any kind of applause or cheering or booing. In order to engage, you will be able to write your questions on note cards that uh, Rabbi Aaron and Yael will walk around and collect throughout the program. We'll try to get to as many of those questions as we can. Can we all agree to these ground rules? Okay, thank you. So let me begin by welcoming our guests here on the Bima with me. To my right, we have Yishai Fleischer, who is the international spokesperson for the Jewish community of Hebron. He is an Israeli broadcaster and a frequent columnist for a number of news outlets, including the Washington Post, um, Breitbart. He's been featured on CNN. Al Jazeera, Fox News, Vice, a number of other uh, outlets as well. He holds a JD from Cordoza Law and rabbinic ordination from Kolel Agudat Achim. He lives on the Mount of Olives in East Jerusalem. And to my left, we have Alan Elsner, who serves as the special advisor to the president of J Street. He has had a very long career in the top ranks of American and international journalism, um, prior to joining J Street, he had a brief stint at the Israel Project. And as State Department and also as a White House correspondent for Reuters news agency, 
He traveled the world with secretaries of state. He was on a first-name basis with many presidents and vice presidents. So for the first and only time during the evening's conversation, before we conclude, I ask that you join me in applause and welcoming our speakers here tonight. So let's start with a, uh, a humanizing face. Ishai, would you share with us your personal story and your connection to Israel? First thing, let me be the first to thank you very much for this uh, fabulous event. I've been looking forward to it. I think we've been planning it for some six months. And it's just great to be uh, in Temple Emanuel, in Beverly Hills, with you folks. And I think we're in for a great evening. And I definitely agree to all those ground rules. Um, and thank you to Rabbi Bass and Rabbi Jonathan. Thank you so much for all that you've done to arrange this. Uh, with regarding to myself, um, I've had a bit of an unusual life in that I was born to Russian refuseniks. And so there are many people in this room who helped my parents get out in the 70s uh, and 80s. My parents got out in the early 70s, though. So thank you very much for that help. Uh, I was born to Russian refuseniks in Haifa, in a, in a village in a neighborhood which has a big Arab village right next to it. And I really lived with Arabs for all my young life. Uh, and my parents took me to America when I was eight. And I moved uh, to Wayne, New Jersey. Nothing exciting there. But uh, I was there until the age of 17. I, I felt the call, the need to return to the land of Israel. And I, I went back to Israel and I went to Yeshiva and I went to the army. I was a paratrooper and continue to be a paratrooper to this very day. I was there for four years. I went back to American uh, to get my degrees. I went to law school here. Uh, and then I again felt that yearning to go back to the land of Israel. I started an Aliyah organization on campus. And with time, I met the right woman because I was in that milieu. I was in that field of, of loving Israel and wanting to go back. I only wanted to marry a girl who would move to Israel. She was from Texan, Texas. Texans make great settlers. And, um, <laughs> and uh, we decided to move in. We moved... Uh, to Beit El, Bethel, which is the place where Jacob had his dream of the ladder, traditionally. Uh, and we were there for, for, for many years. And then I wanted to move. When, when you make Aliyah and you want to make another Aliyah in your life, what's the next Aliyah? Jerusalem. That's right. You want to move to Yerushalayim. I've always wanted to live in Yerushalayim. I love Yerushalayim. Just that word, Yerushalaym, is just so exciting. But I didn't want to stop being a settler. I didn't want to stop that because I thought it was very important to hold on to our land, push back on, on, on bullies, uh, assert uh, our sovereignty and our claim and, and make it clear. And I moved to the Mount of Olives. I, I live in a broader neighborhood called Ras Alamud, which is a broadly Arab neighborhood, within the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem, the city of. So that's, that's, that's you know, has been my life trajectory. Thank you. Alan, would you share a little bit about your relationship to Israel and, uh, and your personal story? Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Bassin. And I also want to thank Rabbi Geller for organizing this. And I want to say that I'm very pleased to be on the Bima with uh, Yishai and looking forward to a great conversation. And if you see me leave the room, it's because it will be too much for me. But I promise to get back. Um, I uh, grew up in a Zionist um, um, household. My father was a Zionist organization, org organizer in Poland before the Second World War. He survived the Holocaust. Um, he was wounded at the end of the war, um, liberated by the British, and he ended up in, in London. I would say that Zionism was really his religion, and the Six-Day War, when I was 13, was really the happiest day of his life, apart from pop possibly his wedding and the birth of his children, but it's debatable. In, 
1973, when the Yom Kippur War began, I was 19 at that time, just beginning my second year at university. I immediately dropped out and flew to Israel on the first flight out of um, the UK, which was October 18th. The war was still going on. Um, and I spent a year on a kibbutz in the north of Israel, which is really where I learned to love the land because I saw the seasons changing. I worked um, taking sheep out to the meadow. It was a very formative experience for me. As soon as I graduated, I made Aliyah. It was in 1977. I also served in the IDF. I was in the IDF in 1982 in the what's now called the First Lebanon War. We didn't know, of course, at that time that there was going to be a second Lebanon War, and God forbid there would ever be a third Lebanon War. Um, I got married in Israel. I say to people that I, I've been, I was married in Israel. I organized a Brit for my son in Israel who was born in Jerusalem on um, uh, Hadassah uh, on the uh, Mount Scopus. And uh, two years ago, I organized the funeral of my father who made Aliyah himself um, and spent the last 30 years of his life passed away and he's buried in the land of Israel and will be part of it. For forever. So um, life has taken me in, an, in another direction, but life is not over yet. And I own a house in uh, Zichon Yaakov and uh, hope very much to spend my declining days um, there. And hopefully the decline will be slow and long and gradual. Admeya Esrim till 120. Um, before we get into your respective visions for uh, the state of Israel, I think that many of us here tonight um, carry assumptions about what you two represent, um, about what you stand for, and I think it's important to address those assumptions head on. Um, so, so, Alan, I'll start with you with some of the critiques that get leveraged uh, to J Street that's often criticized for not being pro-Israel enough. Um, that J Street is quick to undermine Israel's democratically elective government, but slow to criticize Palestinian blockades to peace, um, that you don't support Israel in the hostile environments of the UN. How do you respond to these critiques? Well, the, the question, you know, um, are you pro-Israel or do you love Israel is very much akin to kind of when did you stop beating your wife? So I, I, I have nothing to apologize for J Street's record. Our uh, organization is made up of people who love Israel, who want the best for Israel, whose primary concern is the security and the prosperity of Israel, but see the only way to achieve ultimate security, ultimate prosperity, the end of the conflict, through ending um, the conflict with the Palestinians in a two-state solution. And it's the only solution that's built on the basis of justice and fairness. Um, we, like Hillel, believe that if we're not for ourselves, then who will be for us? But if we are only for ourselves, then what are we? So I believe that J Street is a principled organization that works through the democratic system in the United States uh, to pursue a policy which has been a bipartisan policy for Republicans and Democrats alike, and even for the Trump administration, as it seems, uh, for a two-state solution to end this conflict. The only way to end this conflict uh, it, that, that's in accord with the values that we so deeply believe. Yishai, I'm going to speak from uh, some personal experiences that I've had with the Jewish community of Hebron. Um, when I went to visit a few years ago, there were things that I saw that made me, frankly, embarrassed to call myself a, a Jew. Um, there were a few things that were really difficult to see. 
you know, the metal nets above some of the Arab streets to block trash from being thrown on Arabs. Um, and I think most disturbingly, the thing that I witnessed was Baruch Goldstein, his gravesite, um, being treated like a martyr's gravesite, the man, of course, who, who murdered 30 Palestinians. Is this fringe violence that's in the community? Um, it's, is, it, is it normative? And what is the community doing to address this? How do, you, how do you respond to the accusations of violence against Arabs committed by settlers? It's uh, sad that, that that was the impression that, that you got uh, in Hebron. There have been, certainly, the Middle East is a rough place, and there's been violence from settlers towards Arabs. There, that has happened from time to time, including that event that you spoke of, uh, Goldstein, which was 25 years ago, approximately. Uh, we, we abhor and reject vigilantism and, and violence, and we're always curbing it whenever it starts to rise up. But to paint the situation in Hebron is one of one as Jews attacking Arabs is to really reverse the, the whole thing. It's to look at it, the, the, the mirror inverted. Jewish Hebron is 3% of a gigantic Arab city which is dominated by Hamas. It is an extremely violent city. 60% of all the knife terror that happened in Israel either happened in Hebron or came from Hebron. Jihadism is one of the, pop, is the, one of the most you know, vile and, and, and insidious and yet very popular ideologies that have taken hold, sadly, in the Arab world today. The Jewish community is a tiny ghetto trying to survive in their ancestral homeland where they've been for thousands of years. If the, we do have, commit any kind of violence, it's usually to push back against a massive effect, uh, effort to, to erase our community. That effort uh, will be from, from the international community, which denies our legitimacy. Uh, it'll be uh, from the jihad itself. Uh, it'll be maybe from even organizations that push uh, to delegitimize our presence there or work very hard to make sure that we won't live there in the future. So we're facing a lot of, a lot of efforts to push us out from where we've always lived. And I just think that to see us as being the victimizers is, is really a reversal of the reality on the ground. Thank you. Can I just say something about that? With respect to what you saw, I think that it really understates the real problem, which is not um, settler violence, but institutional um, IDF presence, which has basically destroyed um, Palestinian commercial life in half of the city. As, as Ishai said, there are about 200,000 um, Palestinians there and about, what is it, 800 Jews, something like that. I don't want to restate the number. Uh, Palestinians there, um, the, the Jews are, um, are all heavily armed. There's an entire brigade of the IDF that, that defends them. Um, when they walk around the streets, they walk um, um, with, with guns on. Um, Palestinians have to stay on one side of the street, Jews on the other. We had a situation in, you know, in the United States where, where African Americans had to sit at the back of the bus, but there is no bus where Palestinians and Israelis uh, can sit together. Last week, um, this was caught on video, an eight-year-old Palestinian boy was dragged by soldiers through the streets for over an hour um, when they tried to force him to identify um, rock throwers. Uh, over uh, 1,800 Palestinian businesses in the center of the city have been forcibly closed, and 1,000 housing units vacated due to the Israeli settler presence. So I'm and going this to... this actually goes in, in violation of every value that I, as a Jew, hold dear. It's not that I have... 
I do have sympathy to Palestinians, but I feel it hurts me physically when I see Jews and Israelis behaving so thank in you, this way. So thank you, Alan. I'm gonna, Yishai, give you an opportunity to uh, respond to that. I see we've started playing ball, Alan. Very good. I mean, the a litany of incorrect things that you just said, uh, it really, it is, it is exactly for this reason of these inaccuracies that you just said, that people doubt the veracity of the pro-Israelness of J Street. Because I heard, really, literally blood libels to me. To, to accuse this tiny Jewish community, first thing, Jews and Arabs walk on the same side of the street, that's complete and utter malarkey. I can, I, you know, it's so, I could uh, take a, ask anybody to take a video there right now, you'll see Arabs and Jews walking around. I'm speaking with Arabs and interacting with them every single day. The small uh, uh, Jewish community exists on one street, one street. It's the, it's, that street has become a kind of form of a ghetto, and the army that exists there is only to defend the Jewish people's presence there. We are not the attackers by any means. Uh, we are uh, uh, victims of a, of, a, of a juggernaut ideology that has seized the Middle East called the Jihad. Uh, you accused us of, uh, uh, of destroying businesses. Hebron is the most successful Arab city. 60% of the Palestinian economy, 20,000 businesses, comes all from Hebron. What is their number one trading partner, Hebron? Israel. How much, what is the exports? Five billion shekel a year to Israel, okay? It is the happiest of the Palestinian cities, the, the most successful of them, and, and, and there is a small part of the city that has been shut down, one street, to protect the Jewish people that have been under attack. So yet yet Alan portrays it that we're this massive thing destroying Arab lives. I am going to take a step back. And uh, I see that you guys have, have gotten into the meat of it very quickly. I want us to, to step up to the 20,000 foot level. Um, and just as a reminder, all of you have the note cards. If you want to start writing down your questions now, um, you're welcome to do so. Just kind of hold them up in the air and, and people will be able to... Uh, come and collect those from you. Um, stepping back, to share your concept of what Zionism actually is. What, is. what does this term Zionism mean to you? Yishai? Um, Rabbi Bassan, I was uh, at work in Hebron. And the reason the Jewish people are in Hebron is because of the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs. The mamas and the papas are buried there. The founders of most, the, the fathers and mothers of most of the people in this room our ancestors. And I was there, and before leaving for my trip to the U.S., I looked at that building that houses the 2,000-year-old building housing 3,700-year-old tombs, and I said, hey, I'm going to Beverly Hills to, to talk to the children of Israel a little bit. You know, give me, give me strength. And I went home, and I was, as I was uh, driving out from my house to the airport, I looked at the Temple Mount, because I live very close to the Temple Mount. I live in the Mount of Olives, which is 3,000 years of Jewish burial, 180,000 tombs dating back to King David, I looked at the Temple Mount where two temples stood, and I said, God, you know, give me strength to talk to my brothers and sisters, connect them to the story uh, of Israel. I, I flew first to Florida, raising money, and then I flew to APAC, to Washington, D.C., and at APAC, um, I, I saw that they didn't mention that we are 50 years after the Six-Day War and the reunification of Jerusalem. I saw that they didn't mention the Six-Day War. They didn't mention the embassy move too much. They barely mentioned uh, uh, Iran, and they completely skipped the Balfour Declaration. A hundred years since the Balfour Declaration. It's a hundred years this year. Outside, everybody, there's these protesters that are calling for the end of the occupation. And yet inside APEC, when Jewish people are accused of being thieves of the land, our answer is, but we created the cell phone. So 
that's not a good answer to the accusation that we've stolen somebody else's land. You ask me what Zionism is. I was in your office. I was in the library in the back here. I found a book. I found a book. It's called Behold the Land. It's like a kid's book. And it's got in it little beautiful chapters like The Ingathering of the Exiles. It's got a chapter about the Jewish government. It's got a chapter that's called Our Holocausts Are Over. This book is exactly where I'm at today. Zionism, a building up of a Jewish country, a connecting of all Jews around the world to the greatest project of our peoplehood. I don't think that uh, J Street's approach to making people always constantly critical of Israel is Zionism. This is Zionism, loving the land, building it, pushing back on bullies, of course, letting good people have a decent life in our country. It's the greatest project of our peoplehood in 2,000 years. Thank you. I'm going to ask that you please refrain from applauding. It's not the tone that we're trying to set for this conversation. Thank you. Alan, I, I would love for you to share what Zionism means to you. I actually agree with a lot of what Ishai said. I, it, to me, obviously, Zionism came about because we lived in the diaspora as a powerless people for almost 2,000 years, constantly victimized, and at the end of the 19th century, Theodore Herzl came up with the idea that we needed our own country, a place where we would be safe, a place which would offer a refuge for Jews around the world, a place where Jews could fully express their culture, their language, their religion, self-determination in every sense. And, and that's what it means to me. It's about people. It's not about land so much. Of course, Jerusalem, I lived in Jerusalem. My son was born, and, and, and I remember when he was born, looking over at him from Mount Scopus, from, from the delivery room, I picked up the baby and I said, look, there's the, the Temple Mount. And the doctor said, maybe you'll read from him, uh, for him the, the headlines from uh, Marif. Um, but it's, you know, our self-determination and, and, and the Jewish... The Jewish presence in the land of Israel has always depended on our behavior. In the Bible, when God said, this is your land, he didn't say, take the land and then that's the end of the story. No, he said, here are 613 commandments that you have to fulfill. You have to live in the land in a certain way in order to keep the land. So to me, Zionism is about the freedom and the safety of the Jewish people in the land of Israel but it cannot be based on the oppression and the suppression and the control of another people. Folks, and let me tell you. One second, please. I, let I, me tell I, you. One second, one second. Battle, Alan, Alan, I just want to ask that everybody please honor the rules that, that, that Rabbi Bastin set out. We're having a conversation. I, 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 we're all emotional about these things. So once again, we're going we're gonna to keep it down. Please let Alan say what he wants to say. And, and I do want to let you know if, if there is one more outburst, we're going to ask the, the people who are responsible to leave. Thank you. The very word Jerusalem, embedded in the, the word Jerusalem, is the word shalom, meaning peace. We're told to seek peace and pursue it. We're also told to pursue justice. I want a country where we can be happy and prosperous, but that our prosperity is not on the backs of other people whose lives we control and who don't want to be controlled with us. And that means we have to find a way to share the land. Now, if we go back to the 67 borders with swaps, we will have 78%
of mandatory Palestine, and they will have 22%. And I think that's a pretty good deal. And I can tell you, the uh, people of Israel will never be fully safe and will never be fully happy and prosperous until we manage to fulfill the dream of Zionism fully, which means making peace. Okay, so uh, can as I, you... Can I respond to those points? Uh, well, so we're going to get into our actual visions that, that you guys have presented. Um, as you walked in, you had the opportunity to grab two different articles. One was a piece that Yishai wrote, an uh, opinion piece that was in the New York Times, um, and Alan responded to it in the Jewish Journal, uh, to a shortened version thereof in the Jewish Journal. If you didn't get a chance to pick those up on your way in, please do on your way out. Um, I'm going to start with with you, Alan, to articulate the two-state solution because, Yishai, what, what you're offering is, um, you know, if, if the starting point for the conversation is the two-state solution, you're offering us a broader vision of different opportunities and ways to conceive of uh, possible solutions. So lay out the standard for us right now, what's, what's kind of the consensus um, opinion, uh, even as the Jewish community is moving away from that in some ways, and then Yishai, um, you're going to offer us some of these alternatives. You have two people occupying one fairly small but not tiny tract of territory. Um, we, as a Jewish people, needed that state after the Second World War. There's, there's a story by Isaac Deutscher, who was a um, a Trotskyite, Russian Jew, who wrote, after the Second World War, it's like somebody jumped off a burning building to save themselves. And in doing so, they hit somebody else who was on the ground and injured them. Now that person, if both people had reconciled at that point, we could have had at the end of the conflict. But instead, what we had was anger and resentment and a feeling of victimization on both sides. Embedded in the 1947 partition agreement was the idea of sharing the land of two states, of one state for the Jews and another for the Palestinians. Um, the Palestinians rejected that, the Arab world rejected that, but in the 1990s, under the Oslo Accord, we finally got to a position where both sides were willing to talk about a division of the land. And I think that it's the only way that you can actually end the conflict um, with a modicum of justice to those who have been um, dispossessed up till now. And just as the United States had an original sin in its founding, namely slavery, and had to get past that, we unfortunately injured another party in doing what we had to do in forming the state of Israel, and we have to make a, find a way of making that right. So I'm going to pause you there, um, and you should give you a chance to jump in. I, I understand we're going to have some back and forth on this a little bit, but um, uh, if you wouldn't mind offering your perspective. Look, Rabbi Basson, I, I can give you my five alternatives to two-state solution, but before I get to that, I, I have to deal with the calcified, fuddy-duddy way that we've been told for the longest time that the only solution is the two-state solution, when in fact it has been a historic scientific failure, meaning to say it's been tried over and over and over again with utter failure and utter war, and the two-state solution will do nothing for Israeli security, and that has been proven. And I have to make this in, in a kind of bullet points, okay? Number one, does it ever surprise you that Palestine wants to rise up exactly where 
historic Israel existed, specifically in the very most historic biblical places where we derive all of our narrative that we're returning back to a, a homeland. When our grandparents, when your father uh, spoke of Zionism, did he speak of Tel Aviv? Certainly not. It didn't exist and didn't exist in history. He spoke of Hebron, Beit El, Yerushalayim. No, he that, spoke of Tel Aviv, excuse me. In, and, his grand, and his father before him knew of Tel Aviv? No, of course not. Tel Aviv is, is great. By the way, Tel Aviv, of course, partially built on Arab villages also. That's besides the point. Uh, nobody in history spoke of Tel Aviv. I can show you in this book as well. It's the return to Eastern Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives, to Hebron, to the tombs of our fathers and mothers. Now the problem is, is if you call for a two-state solution on that land, you're going to undermine our historical claim. If we don't have rights in Hebron, you're not going to have rights in, in Tel Aviv. I'll have to make it quick, I understand. Second thing is a little tiny problem with Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. Little problem is that it's the strategic high ground. It actually controls, the, it overlooks the Tel Aviv coastal plain and the Jordan Valley plain as well. And therefore, there's a little problem in a jihadist milieu of the Middle East, which J Street conveniently forgets that there's a little thing going on in the Middle East, which is jihad all over, wars, 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 that if we would give land in Judea and Samaria to the Palestinians, we would have basically a terrorist state, a forward base for jihad. Am I, am I you know, pulling it out of thin air? Oh, no, we tested it in Gaza. We walked out of Gaza, and now we've had three wars in six years. And we have a horrible Hamas, neo-Nazi-like jihad living right next door. That's the problem of the strategic high ground. We've tried and tested it. Now, another thing is that people like myself, settlers, who are, by the way, uh, the forward units, the elite units of Zionism, in my opinion, uh, people like myself have blocked the two-state solution. Effectively, we, ha we now have 450,000 Jews living in these places that uh, Alan would like you to evacuate these Jews, forcibly, of course, an ethnic cleansing type thing. Uh, and we have 200,000 200, and 250,000 living in eastern Jerusalem. It's not going to happen. No Israeli government has either the political ability to do it, nor the physical ability to do it. And I am going to pause you there. And Alan, give you a chance to respond, and then we'll have a little bit more back and forth. The, Thank the, you, Shai. The problem with your formula is it's a formula for either the end of Israeli democracy or the Jewish state. If we maintain control over 2.5 million Palestinians in the West Bank, and I want to quote here from Tamir Pardo, the ex-head um, of the um, Shin Bet, who said only last week, um, and he talked about this, he said that... Wait a minute, let me find it. He said, uh, Israel is sitting on a bomb that has been ticking incessantly over the years, yet for some reason we have chosen to bury our heads deep in the sand. This is the former head of the Mossad, not me. Feeding ourselves alternative facts and creating all kinds of new external threats so as to having to, to uh, avoid facing reality. Two religious groups, roughly of equal size, Jews and Muslims, reside between the Jordan River and the sea. There are 1.7 million Arabs in Israel, between two and, a half, two, and two and a half million on the West Bank, and another two million in Gaza. The non-Jewish residents of Judea and Samaria have lived under Israeli military rule since the Six-Day War. We ourselves have determined the territory is subject to military rule and under the rule of the IDF. Yishai, so you want this, to respond to that just, one? Let, just let me just finish the point very, very briefly. Either we continue to deprive them of rights, in which case we will no longer be a democracy, or we give them political rights, in which case there will no longer be a, a, a Jewish majority and there won't be a Jewish state. And, and we do have, we have thought that through. There are alternatives to the two-state solution that will make sense and will comport with liberal values one way or the other. 
still, though, still yet and all, still one more point to, to, to make it clear. Uh, we're not done yet with the problem of the two-state solution. I, I, you'll have to give me just one more second. I'm going to say something that's going to sound very beautiful, okay? I have something that I deeply care about, Rabbi. I'm going to give it to you for peace, okay? It's mine, it's my heart, but I'm going to give it to you for peace. How does that sound, Rabbi? It sounds nice, right? It sounds really beautiful. In the Middle Eastern ear, it does not sound beautiful. It sounds like, take my daughter, do whatever you want, just don't hurt me. I'm willing to give up the most sensitive and important things because I'm cowardly, I'm broken. I actually don't want to uh, 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 deal with you. I'm afraid of you. And, and here, take this. Just, just don't touch me. Don't hurt me. That's how it sounds like in the Middle East. When you say in the, to the Middle Eastern person, I'm willing to give you, discuss Jerusalem because I want peace with you, what the other party hears is, <clears throat> they hear that I am spineless. I'm a jellyfish. I am, you could take what I could give you now and get the rest later. But, the but by we... the very, excuse me, by the very, very idea of giving away what's important and historical to you, you have undermined your position as a, as a partner, as a Middle Eastern. It sounds good. And I'll give you an example, okay? If you're shopping in Walmart and you think you're going to be able to shop in the Middle East marketplace like you shop at Walmart, you're not going to buy anything all day, okay? If you don't understand that the Middle East has different rules, different rules of engagement, the Middle East is about respect. It's about being strong. That's the way it works in the Middle East. You've got to hold on. You've, and when somebody says, hey, that's my Hebron, that's my Jerusalem, you say, buddy, I don't want to hear that again. If you say that again, I'm going to push you even, even further back. But then people are like, oh, that's my Middle Eastern Semitic cousin, okay? But when you come with these Western, uh, uh, you know, these, these uh, first thing, in 55 land conflicts in the Middle East, only one party believes that the way forward to peace is to give away more land. Only the Jews could come up with this brilliant idea that the way to make it in the Middle East is to give away more, more land. Surrender your ancestral homeland. Surrender your, your high ground. That's so never going to work. I'm telling you guys, if it hasn't worked in 40 years, it's not going to work now. We have more settlers there, more Jews there, less political will, and this kind of discussion only weakens us and shoots us, shoots us in the foot. Alan. You know, I think that the settlement and the occupation are really kind of driving at the heart of the morality of the, of the Jewish people. When you have a poll after a soldier kills a, an assailant who's been disarmed and half of the people say that it's perfectly okay. And you have a message basically that they, they're animals. We will never make peace with them. We can't trust them. You know what? Uh, we've been telling them for the last 30 years... We've been telling them for the last 30 years that we're willing to make peace and in the meantime, we've been building settlements. Every day they hear... The, um, the sound of our, our cement machines, of our ground breakers. We've taken 40% of their land and told them that they can't do anything of it. We won't give them any... So, Alan, we're, we're, we're thieves. We're thieves. Is that what you're saying, Alan? So, That's you know Alan's what? answer. Alan's answer is that the Jewish people, ladies and gentlemen, are thieves in their ancestral homeland. We are oppressive, oppressive people. Now, you think that Alan Elsner's organization is going to raise the next generation of Zionists? He believes that we are thieves in our own land. He believes that we're a bad people. That's what they teach the next generation. I have seen it. This is not going to be a generation that's going to, uh, organization that's going to raise the next generation of soldiers or Zionists or birthright kids. It's going to teach them this darkness, this belief that the most liberal country in the whole Middle East is an evil country. That's what he's saying. He's so, saying that the Jewish people that live in Hebron have no right to live there and that we're the oppressors when we have been the victims all these years. A hundred years wars. A hundred years we've been attacked by the Arabs. We've been through a Holocaust coming back to our homeland. And now he's telling me that the best country in the Middle East is the worst one? Okay. 
I understand that emotions are getting high. I wanna thank everybody for being here and listening with resilience. These are difficult conversations to have. I appreciate your passion. And Alan, I It hurts. I hear it. It Alan, hurts. I, wanna, I want you to have It hurts a when that accusation, which is a type shy. of you harsh you blood shy. libel. Thank you. No problem. Alan, sure. I would love for you to respond, please. Of course, I don't think that we're the worst country in the Middle East. Of course, I believe that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Of course, I believe that the human rights record in Israel has no comparison to what's happening in Syria. But I also want to say that... Um, the that, that our safety is partly um, due to the fact that the Palestinian security forces cooperate with the IDF every day and have made uh, things a lot better than they could have been. They would have been a lot worse without that. It's not a question of me comparing ourselves to other countries. It's a question of me holding us to the standards that are embedded in our tradition, which we learn at our father's, grandfather's, and mother's knee. And what are those what are those values? What are those values? 37 times it says in the Bible to look after the stranger. It talks about looking after the weak, the oppressed, the orphan, and the widow. And it doesn't say just the Jewish orphan. It doesn't say just the Jewish stranger. It talks about pursuing justice. It so doesn't say just for Jews. We are and I think that, you know, embedded in your opinion, is not only love of the Jewish people, but love is a very complicated and, and, and very difficult kind of thing. There can be obsessive self-love. Okay, which, Alan, which, Alan, which Alan, I'm going to pause you because I want, us, I want us to progress the conversation forward. I get into some of the practicalities of the proposals that you offer. So, Alan, <clears throat> you reject the idea that the two-state solution is dead. Um, and you simultaneously acknowledge that the prospect for the solution being realized in the near future are really quite grim in the current climate. Do we just wait for a cataclysmic shift in the reality today? Or what do we do other than sit here and, and hope that a two-state solution is viable? I believe that the closer we get to a situation where the two-state solution seems to be dead, it's like looking over a precipice and seeing what lies there below. And what it is is a one-state solution of one kind or another. And the one-state solution I think that Ishai is advocating is one in which some people have rights and other people don't have rights. He himself says in his article that there are potentially repugnant elements to all of the solutions that he suggests. I don't want to get behind solutions that are repugnant. I know... Really, you don't? I, I know, you seem to be I the, know the, that you the prospects one. right now seem to be slim, but I've seen enough in my life. I never... I covered the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union. None of us who grew up expected to see that. I saw the end of apartheid in South Africa, and I'm not comparing Israel to South Africa here. But I, if you just look at a map of the world, the way it was 50 years ago, and look at it today, it bears no relation to, to that reality. And if you look at it in 50 years from now, again, it will bear no relation. What we need in the, in the land of Israel is a state. But we don't need all of the land of Israel because okay. that means depriving our neighbors of their rights. Okay. So, Yishai, the proposals that you put on the table, I think that um, one of the critiques could be that uh, they don't have Arab buy-in. Um, what do you say to that? Is that a significant obstacle? Is there a shift in public opinion? Again, if, if I'm going to challenge Alan on the practicality of the two-state solution, help us with the practicality of some of your proposals. 
I like that. First thing, thanks. I, I appreciate that term, Arab buy-in. That's, that's a good question. I, I have to get to my five alternatives quickly, but with regard to, to Arab buy-in, uh, well, you know, Zionism is not Arab buy-in. 22 Arab countries, of which we are only 0.6% uh, in terms of land mass, they have Arab buy-in. Israel is not an Arab country. It's a Jewish state with self-determination for Jewish people. It's meant to defend our tiny minority, again, persecuted for thousands of years, returning back to the ancestral homeland. That's the, actually the key there. And that is something that I have to tell J Street students, which, by the way, I have the great honor of speaking to often. Thank you. I appreciate the organization lets me have a voice there. And I often say to them, Zionism is not building of a Palestinian state. I am not for suppressing or oppressing minorities or Arabs, but I just remember that Zionism is about defending our people, our peoplehood. It's about, it's about our people coming back to their land and, and creating a country of their own. So I don't know about Arab buying, but here we go. Let's do five, okay? We'll do it very quickly. Very I promise quickly. not to dominate the, uh, the, the speaking time. Here we go. Uh, the first alternative is a belief that Jordan is Palestine. Jordan is an 80% Palestinian state, okay? 80% of, of Jordan is, is Palestinians. So the idea there would be is that after we would annex, i.e., assert Israeli sovereignty over all of Judea and Samaria, which is our ancestral homeland, there's a lot of Arabs, about 2 million, whatever, that live there, we, they would become residents in our country and would get citizenship in Jordan. They will stay in our country, they will live there as residents, but vote in the next-door country of, of Palestine, Jordan. That's one. That's one. Number two is something that... Oh, by the way, these are not my opinions. Can these we are go Knesset by this one by one so I can respond I one by one? I actually think that that would be useful. Fair enough. So uh, the proposal on the table is um, for annexation of the West Bank of Judea and Samaria and for uh, Palestinian citizenship to be in Jordan but to remain residents of that area. You know, I think that this is just an absurd idea. First of all, it would de destabilize Jordan and the Jordan Jordanians won't, don't want it, but it's really akin to saying, let's have all the African-Americans who live in Michigan become citizens of Canada. They can vote in Canada. The fact is that they live in Michigan, in the United States. They need to have a voice in their own affairs where they live. And Yishai doesn't answer the question, who will be in charge of them where they become residents of Yishai? Oh, will they become? Will they oh. remain under the control of the IDF? No, that, that I will answer. There you go. I'm very excited to answer this. Thank you. Because in truth, what, what Alan is going to paint to you throughout, and he'll continue to do it afterwards, is that right-wingers, or settlers like myself, want to get away from Arabs, subdue them, put them in a second-class status. That's going to be the refrain. What he, in fact, what he wants to do is put a wall in the middle of our country, throw the Arabs behind that wall, and say, good luck, throw away the keys, and put them under a 23rd jihadist regime. What right-wingers actually believe, like myself, settlers like myself, is that when we annex, we will take responsibility for our minority, very much in line with the liberal values espoused before. Yes, the Torah does say often that the stranger amongst you shall be treated equally and well, given, of course, that he accepts your sovereignty that he accepts that you are a Jewish state. That's, by the way, what Prime Minister Netanyahu is always saying. Accept the fact, like, say that you accept a Jewish state. So, by the way, just so you know, in democracy, if you're an American and you move to France, you could still vote in America. If you live in our residency, you will have a decent life. By the way, that's what Jerusalem Arabs have. They have residency. So you will have a, 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 a pathway to citizenship. Let's go ahead. We've got five of these to get through. So, very interesting. Um, when Israel annexed Jerusalem, it annexed the land, but it didn't give full political rights to the people so that they can't... They live in Israel, but they can't vote. And we're going to pause we'll that one there that. because we'll we've, got, we've secondly, got four And secondly, this idea that the Palestinians are strangers... Um, you know, you if said you, that. If you've been... 
Yes, it was, I, it was I, your, it I was your idea. about what the Torah says, but I reject the idea that people who've lived in a place for generations are strangers because you go back to a text and... and I was and using your paradigm. I was using your paradigm. Gentlemen, let's, let's we're going to push through yeah. to this no proposal. Option number two is being proffered up by, uh, by the education minister, Naftali Bennett. Naftali Bennett says, look... Area C, as part of the Oslo Accords, is the place where all the, most of the Jews in Judea and Samaria and the West Bank live. And next, Area C, 400,000 Jews there. That's Malay Adumim, that's Ariel, uh, that's the Gush Etzion region. And next, these areas give the Jews that live there full normal Israeli political rights and, and, and rights for housing and all the things that were lacking in Judea and Samaria. And the 40,000 Arabs that live in Area C, bring them in, give them full citizenship. Areas A and B, the remainder... Uh, of Judea and Samaria, which is a small percentage, that'll be under some kind of autonomy, some kind of self-rule. Uh, he calls it autonomy on steroids. And this dovetails with another theory uh, proffered up by a professor at Bar-Ilan, one of the world's Middle East experts. Uh, his name is Professor Mordechai Kedar. He says, this idea of a Palestinian state is not true. There is no Palestinian nation per se. It is a tribal community. And the tribes that live in Shechem and Nablus do not marry the tribes in Hebron. He says, empower local muhtars, local strongmen, local leaders, local elders to rule in the Arab neighborhoods, give them kind of self-rule, but the land we will, we, will, we will administer, we will be sovereigns, but they will have some kind of self-rule in the traditional Middle Eastern fashion. So we've got proposals two and three Correct. that involve some form of limited autonomy for the Arab population. So area C that, that Naftali Bennett wants to annex is six, 60% of the territory. And that leaves the Palestinians in a, uh, a chain, a kind of little archipelago of cities loosely connected. You might call them Bantu stands. This was tried in, in South Africa, and it didn't work. Um, and it doesn't answer their... Uh, maybe in the 1920s they were tribes, but they have been forged through common uh, experience. And now I believe that it, it's in... in this, it's indisputable that the Palestinians regard themselves as a nation and what they need and what they desire and what they deserve is self-determination. I, I highly dispute that given the fact that I speak with Arabs every day, excuse me, I speak with Arabs every day and there are many Arabs, even in Hebron, which is Hamas dominated, who say to me they detest the Palestinian Authority. By the way, that is a fact. You could look up the, the polls of how Palestinians on the street think about Palestinian Authority. They think it's both corrupt and jihadist. They detest it. They detest... They detest Jews that are trying to force them under, under the, the Palestinian Authority. I don't believe I said the words Palestinian Authority, and I'm certainly not here to defend the, the corruption that certainly exists within the Palestinian Authority. I'm just saying this idea that you can end the conflict by giving them local municipal rights to collect the garbage in Nablus and Ramallah is a fantasy. No, no, I didn't mean collect garbage. I meant to say that given that Arabs have a cultural uh, a way that they have administered justice and, and they don't work on Western democracy. Uh, your, your former country, you know, came in and created borders and lines in the, in the Middle East and tried to, you know, bring, bring all kinds of tribes and peoples together. It didn't work and all the European lines are now breaking down. Uh, they have different methods, not Western methods, not state methods, the way you describe them, uh, to rule themselves. In any case, let's proposal go on, am four. I right? Uh, proposal number four is one that I think is probably the most reasonable and that is the basic formula that goes like this. Judea and Samaria, ancestral homeland, 400,000 Jews live in Judea and Samaria, plus 250,000 in, in eastern Jerusalem. We will annex those parts. Just like we did the Golan Heights in Jerusalem, we will annex those parts in Judea and Samaria, the ancestral homeland, okay? 
the two million Arabs that live there will get immediately residency. Residency, by the way, doesn't mean that you can get away with being a criminal. It means that you are now beholden to the laws of the state of Israel, you're a resident of it, and you will have a pathway to citizenship if you prove loyalty. That's not so hard. We have very loyal minorities in the country that do great with full democratic rights. The Druze, for example, there's about 50,000 Druze in Israel. They are wonderful, they are awesome, they're Knesset members, they are heads of brigades in the army, they are minorities. What's the difference between these, by the way, Druze are Arab speaking, they are Arab culture in some ways, but they have a different religion, different way of looking at things. Why do they fare so well in Israel and the Arabs don't feel that same uh, uh, wellness? Why? Because the Druze aren't jihadist. They accept the idea that this is a Jewish state and I can live under it. And Alan, respond. I mean, of all the ideas, I think this is the tremendously, the, the, the biggest fantasy, that, that, that for second-class rights, no political power, no, no power to... I said to, pathway to citizenship, did I not? And a path to citizenship um, that, 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 that I think that, you know, is, is entirely kind of theoretical. They would, uh, they would abandon what I think is a natural uh, right and a natural aspiration, which is basically the same as what I want for myself, to be able to control my own rights. And I, I you know what? I so think are you a lobbyist for an Israel or for a Palestine because you that, but, but want let, to create a Palestinian state just, for them? Which let, one is it? Let, let's, just, let's just assume that, that your formula is right and that, that in, en masse they accept the path for the citizenship and become citizens. We then lose a Jewish majority in the land of Israel. We lose Israel as Israel. We we perhaps maintain control over these places that are so important to you. And by the way, for me, it's about people. It's not about dirt. It's about people. It's about the, the, the safety, the prosperity, and the self-realization of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. But it's not about this rock, this tree that happens to be... You go to Elon Moray, they'll tell you, which is a settlement, this is where Abraham slept on his first night in the Holy Land. That settlement was moved by the Supreme Court 11 times. So where is it? We don't know which rock it was. And it's not important to me. God never determines a border for the land of Israel. What's important to me is that we have a state in the land of Israel that it lives in peace and security with its neighbors. Yishai. First thing, your trivialization of the places that our forefathers walked in. For example, Hebron. Not only did our forefather Abraham walk there, but we've had a running community there for thousands of years, including for the last 500 years since the eviction from Spain. It was only destroyed by the jihad in 1929. This idea that, that land doesn't matter and all this, this all sounds like beautiful things, but they're completely Western. You, you are speaking as a, a total foreigner in this region. The region doesn't talk the way you talk. People, Arabs in the Middle East, make wars over a well. They'll make wars for generations. They'll hold on to it, okay? So your way sounds good, but it's just regionally, how should I say, it's pretentious. It's not part of how our region behaves. Furthermore, what bothers me so much in what you're saying, it's as though you're promising peace when it has been proven time and time again that land for peace ends up being the worst security threat. So let's... Excuse me one second. Southern Lebanon. We walked out of southern Lebanon. Now there's 200,000 Shiite rockets. Any day they could be tipped with nuclear weapons or gas that Syria is so good at, and Korean weapons. We have 200,000 rockets trained us exactly from where we left. Gaza. We left Gaza. We've had three wars in six years, as I said. We left Judea and Samaria. We had to go back in because we had to control the situation. I'm going to push us now to the fifth proposal. Okay, the fifth proposal uh, is the one that's going to sound most repugnant, but basically the idea is... Oh, and by the way, when you 
said that my proposal, that I said that, that, that there's some repugnancy, I'm the one who wrote that. I wrote that saying, yes, there are repugnancies, but at least let's get out from calcified thinking, which is going to try to sell us the same old, same old, repackaged with these words or these words or, you know, uh, all kinds of highfalutin morals, but has proven to be failure. Last option is the belief that Arabs and Jews uh, and competing nationalities, competing national interests will not coexist well. And therefore, the idea is to help promote immigration for Arabs to the 22 other Arab countries in our region by uh, compensating those Arabs who willfully want to go. Nobody's talking about expulsion or anything like that. But we have an intractable conflict. Help Arabs by paying them a lot of money, $100,000 or whatever it is. Uh, some people say up to $200,000 to find their way to a different land. Of course, that sounds very, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's hard for us to listen to such a thing. So I'll make two comments about that. Number one, don't forget that Alan Elsner is already saying, move people from their house. He's the one that's calling to move people. He just can't believe that we could actually say the word, move Arabs. You could say, move Jews, move hundreds of thousands of Jews, cause pain and heartache, and kick them off the land, that's fine. But, the, the, but move Arabs, that's, that's unacceptable. Okay. Right. This idea would be to pay Arabs to move to, to lands or to America and to kind of separate out, as was done after uh, World War II, Greece and Turkey, India and Pakistan, and so, so forth. So large-scale population transfer. Voluntary. You know, voluntary. Voluntary, voluntary transfer. Voluntary First of all, under the formula of, of land swaps, 80% of the settlers could stay where they are. So I'm not in, you know, it gives me no joy to talk about um, moving settlements. Um, the Israeli government just passed a law, by the way, making it legal to actually take privately owned um, Palestinian land and build settlements on it, steal their land, essentially. That's let right, that's right, that's right. No, no, that's right. The state of Israel has made a law that says you could just steal land from Arabs. Did you hear that? It's, right. it's amazing, Ishai, the state Ishai, of Israel. Ishai. I mean, no, he said that. I, he said that. He said that you did could I steal land you? from Arabs. That's a law in the Knesset. Is that correct? Did I interrupt you? Did I interrupt you? I'm sorry. Did I? No, you did not, and I'm sorry. Okay. You know, where I live in Rockville, Maryland, very often I get these postcards through the door. Somebody wants to buy my home because it's in a desirable area. And I don't want to sell it. If I've been, you know, I live as a, as an, a Palestinian farmer. I, I grow my crops. I've been there for generations. This is the land which I want to hand on to my children, to my grandchildren. And incidentally, there are farmers, and there was an article about this in the New York Times, who are only allowed access to their own land for a very short number of days every year to plant their crops and to, and, and to harvest them. For the rest of the time, they're not allowed access to their own land. Now, you know, if people want to take money and go elsewhere, although I have no idea where they would go, perhaps they'll go to Jordan, which has two and a half million um, uh, Syrian refugees. Perhaps they'll go to Turkey, which has another million and a half um, Syrian refugees, or maybe they'll, they'll go to Europe, to Germany, which took a million Syrian refugees, or maybe they'll come here where President Trump will welcome them all with open arms. So it's not clear to me where they would go, but I think that, you know, like all of these ideas, there's something tremendously paternalistic about them, because not one of them has any buy-in from the other side, and we're always you know, what I hear from Ishai at the bottom, the Middle East is a brutal place, and therefore we have to be brutal to survive there. Now, that may be, you know, we, we need to be tough, we need to be strong, but when we become brutal, we lose our souls, 
And, you know, to me, a Jewish state that is not democratic and that does not accord full rights to all its citizens is not a state that I feel okay. is worth, all right. you know, is a tragedy. It hurts me. But you don't want to give rights even to think about the <laughs> kind of country Gentlemen. that you want to build. Thank you. Yeshai, we're going to let you jump in here. I, I just, I notice in your argumentation a constant swinging. Sometimes you're a lobbyist for the Palestinian people. I don't remember that they hired you for their, as a lobbyist, but you are Jewish, so maybe that happened. Uh, I, I don't know about that. And then suddenly you're telling me that you're, you're saving Israel's morality, but you actually you want everybody to have rights, but then you actually don't want them to have rights, you want them to have a different country. You completely deny the fact that, that the two-state solution has been a recurring failure. You forget very conveniently that there's a jihad in the Middle East, that you're actually relegating these Palestinians, that you want to have rights in your country, but you don't want them in the country to live in a different country, but you know it's going to be a suppressive country, oppressive country. It's, it's a convoluted mess. It's a convoluted mess. There's no clarity to it. And that's why it has failed recurrently. And it's time to stop promising something that we won't be able to deliver we won't be able, there's no political will on, on any side in Israel. The polls right now, another poll was taken by JCPA, by Mina Tzemach, and it's, it, the, the idea of land for peace is slipping away. It's not popular in America per se, American, not Jews, but America. We're not going to be, Alan, even if you were right, we're not going to be able to do it. Okay. And I... therefore, wait, and therefore, if we keep promising it, we will only bring frustration into the world. I agree with my European counterparts that say you can't have a settlement policy and a two-state solution. They're right. But we keep saying that we will be able to. Even Prime Minister Netanyahu says, yes, we'll do a two-state solution, okay. but I want to keep having settlements. Right. It won't work. We have to give clarity to the world. So I am going to move us now into questions from, from the audience. Um, I have a few for, uh, about the current political environment in the United States, but I want to start with this one. Do you think a Jewish life is more valuable than a Palestinian life? Absolutely not. Uh, but it is more valuable to the Jewish state, meaning to say the Jewish state, its interest lies in defending the Jewish people. The Jewish state has three values that it has to uphold. First, it has to defend that small minority in the, in the region, which is called the Jewish people, a persecuted minority. By the way, there's only two kinds of minorities in the Middle East. Two kinds of minorities, armed and unarmed. Okay, Christians, Yazidis, Copts on the run, being destroyed. Bethlehem, Christianity is being destroyed. And then there's two minorities that I know of that are armed, Kurds and the Jews. And they survive in the Middle East. They survive. And I, I, to, to, even, to even suggest that I would think that a Palestinian life would be lesser, God forbid, but the Jewish state is, is charged with protecting this persecuted minority and making sure that they do well. The 22 other Arab countries are charged with making sure that the Arab peoples do well. So this question is presumably for you, Alan. How can there ever be peace as long as Palestinians are taught hate in their schools and if Palestinians are rewarded for financially for committing murder? Right, and, and that is you know, a serious problem, which I certainly acknowledge and, and condemn. I believe, though, that in, in this equation, um, Israel, Israel is a tremendous success, a, a, an, an amazing miracle. We have built in the land of Israel the strongest economy in the region, the strongest army in the region, a strong country, a proud country. And we have all the power in this equation, all the power. And we have never come since the assassination of Rabin, I would, I would argue, in, in, in full good faith, with, a, in, with sincerity, as, as Ishai says, we keep building settlements. We have never come to them 
and made a sincere offer to peace. Everybody knows what the peace looks like. Everybody knows the sacrifices that we need to make. And, you know, I think that um, one of the problems, I think, that on the West Bank, and Pardo says, you know, the GDP in the West Bank is, is about 3% of what it is per person uh, in Israel. Economic activity has been strangled by the roadblocks, by the occupation, and by the, um, by the failure of the Israelis to allow building permits, for instance, in, in Area C, which they virtually never do. Okay. So I think that, you know, a lot of hatred and resentment, which I do not excuse and which I condemn, goes out of a, of a sense of hopelessness. And you need to give people hope in the future, hope that, that, that one day their circumstances can be better. Yishai, a question for you. I, I have to comment on that. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, are you wearing contact lenses or... How, how is it that the world is so amazingly inverted for you? To me, to state here publicly that the Jewish people have all the power, that we're the big boys that just control everybody, and that also we're a suppressive people who are not letting Palestinians have a life. It is to me, I, you know, I stand here, it's hard for me to even formulate how to answer those questions. We're a tiny minority in the region. Tiny minority, as I tell my Arab friends all the time. Allah loves you. He has given you 22 countries and oil coming out of the ground. Yes, we've been successful and we've pushed back on the jihad, but to paint it as though this tiny corner of the Middle East rules everybody okay. and that we're suppressing, we are the only ones. You go to Israeli, go to the Israeli uh, uh, Knesset, you'll see Arabs there. Go to the Israeli Supreme Court, you'll see Arabs there. You go to the Israeli universities, you'll see Arabs with an upward mobility. Okay, so they I have am, no upward mobility anywhere else but us. Why is us. it that you're standing in front of this audience and telling them that somehow we are the oppressors and suppressors? Again, I don't understand. Are you a lobbyist for the so Palestinians? So I'm going to move us to uh, a question on, um, on Arab response. Um, this question is for you, Yishai. If Arab buy-in isn't an issue... Then how if can, what? if Arab buy-in is not an issue for any of your proposals, then how can you guarantee the Palestinians will accept any of your solutions? If the problem is Palestinian violence, then what is your solution? My solution is pushing back on the jihad. I think that we have absolutely no... Nothing that we could do other than push back on the jihad. When I say push back on the jihad does not mean... By the way, have you noticed that I don't use the word Arabs when I talk about these things? Because Arabs are my cousins. They speak a similar language. We live there together. We will always live there together. I believe that every Israeli should study Arabic, that we should know our region. I don't, I don't believe that the Arabs, that we have an Arab-Israeli war. I think we have a jihadist war. Jihadism is like an ideology, like Nazism within Germany. Not every German's a Nazi, but every Nazi's a bad guy. Okay? You got to push back on jihadists. Push back on those folks. We all want to push back on those folks. Okay? The whole, the whole world wants to push back on those folks. They look to Israel as a light of that. So that's, who, that's how I want to uh, deal with all this anti-Israelism, by pushing back on it. It is only by pushing back on the jihad that you will let decent and tolerant Arabs, of which there are many, of which I know many, Live a normal life in the land of Israel. Alan, you have to, you okay. have to smash the bad Thank guys you. so you can let the good guys live. Alan, any responses to that? Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, what I regard as a, a, a national conflict over land, you want to turn into a religious conflict between uh, two religions. And the difference is that a national conflict over land can be solved by dividing the land, but a religious conflict, a religious war, basically 
built into kind of a, you know, an, a, an ideology can never be solved. And that suits you very well because it gives, you your, your, it gives a justification to your narrative that we have to be just as brutal as they are. Okay. I just, I, I just think it's an issue of, of, of looking things realistically and not wishing it away because it's uncomfortable morally or something. I'm, so I'm going to read the us. Jewish, the Jewish tradition, when I read the prophets, is you, you not... You always slide into, okay. into okay. theorics, uh, theoretics Gentlemen, and gonna, philosophies when we're dealing with real the, things. I'm going to bring us back to the ground. I'm going to bring us back to practicality here um, and facing the different administration with a different tone under Donald Trump um, and also the ambassador that he has appointed, David Friedman, um, what is your sense of the political climate and what we can anticipate in terms of change or transformation? Uh, whoever wants to go first. Well, it's really interesting that, you know, Trump made his comment with Netanyahu standing by his side that he didn't care if it was one state or two states, but then he sent off J uh, uh, Jason uh, Greenblatt to talk to the leaders there, and all of a sudden we're back to two states, which shows, shows me that, 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 you know, when it gets down to it, when you look at the one-state solution, when you look at the, the binary state, when you, uh, it's, there's just no future in it. It's, the only future is, like, endless conflict. And I do think there are some people who have an interest in in endless conflict to pursue their agenda, but I'm not one of them. I believe, not, not in optimism, but in hope. And that's a Jewish tradition. We don't give up hope. We say next year in Jerusalem, we said it for 2,000 years, it didn't look like it was gonna happen, and then it happened. Our national anthem is called Hatikva, which means the hope. And therefore, you know, I don't look so much at the, uh, the situation today no, and the bleakness that, that you shy, the brutality that you're, that, that you're portraying. I look more to the hills, as it says in the Psalms, because I'm not willing to quit on the idea of Israel as a democracy and as a moral, decent, liberal, Western-style okay. country in this region. And you shy. Uh, Donald Trump, David Friedman, what's your sense of the situation? First thing is, is that you, you, you speak with high words, but in the end you relegate us to war. And you've done that. It's been proven. And I just, I feel that, I am always wondering, where do you, where do you get such confidence from? Your project has been tested and failed with horrible wars again and again. Pushed to Donald Trump and uh, Donald Trump, and the, answer is, the, the answer is, I, I was speaking to a, a youth group recently, and a, a kid raises his hand, he says, well, what do you think about Donald Trump? I gave an answer. And, and another kid raises his hand and he goes, well, what do you think about this thing about Donald Trump? And I, and I said to him, I just gave an answer about Donald Trump and now I wanna ask you a question. And I said, can you name me 10 Knesset members? No. Can you tell me about the three top issues that are being discussed in Knesset today? No. My point is, is that I come to you here as a representative of Israel. I'm not trying to get a foreign government to push our Jewish government to do something. I'm trying to represent our people. I believe that our people have to be forward with self-determination, tell the world the policies that we want to pursue. Donald Trump, God bless him. He should be a successful president. I bless this country. I bless, you know, all the things. We have to move forward with vision, with courage, with what's good for us, and the world will respect us. They will respect us when we move Avanti, as we say in Italian, you know, with, and, and with, with fortitude and not with wishy-washiness and, and a lot of morals that in the end of the day empower the worst. And this is the, what bothers me so much. In the end, what Alan is telling you is going to empower the least liberal people in the world. 
the you least. Know, you know, you, you speak as if you represent the whole of Israel, but you actually—I certainly do not. I certainly do not. You actually represent a tiny minority. You're, Far I from remember, a tiny minority. I, I, our government. Me. We are sixty-seven percent. Sixty-seven seats Israel, are right-wing in the government today. Excuse me. I'll give you a chance today. to respond. In the early 80s, I covered a plan Tiny by Sharon to put 2.1 million people into the West Bank. And according to your own figures, it's about 400,000. And that's despite the fact that nearly all the building that the Israeli government does is in the West Bank. Last year, housing starts in the West Bank up 17%. For the rest Thank of God. Israel, down 8%. Bad. And let me tell more. you, there are more people, Israelis, living in Berlin today than in the largest settlement in the West Bank. And there are 10 times more living here in Los Angeles today because they are given no housing options in the Negev, no housing options in the Galilee. Housing starts in Haifa, down 16% last year while they're up 17% in the West Bank. The government is trying everything it can to get people to go to the West Bank and they don't go. They don't okay. want to go. If you are somebody in, in Israel, you know, there's a lovely guest house in Beitel. Let's go there for the weekend. And they say, are you crazy? The only circumstances in which most Israelis will set foot on the West Bank is in their military service where they're forced to man check posts and look Palestinians in the eye and decide which okay. women get to go to the maternity okay. ward and which don't. All right, Yishai. I mean, you just heard an absolute malarkey, really. We have 800,000 tourists that come to the Tomb of the Fathers and Mothers every single year. It is the fastest growing of all the Jewish communities is in Judean Samaria. And I wish to God, Alan, that your organization would actually be a lobbyist for building in the Negev. I would support J Street, okay? If you're wanting housing in other places, believe me, I believe in that also. I am not just a Judean Samaria guy. I love Tel Aviv. I love the Negev. Build in the Negev. Build in the Galil. West of the Jordan River is our land, and we should build in it 100%. With regarding to uh, uh, suppression and oppression of Arabs, again, we're the, we're, we're the light, the star of liberalism. I can't believe that in front of all these people, you would constantly criticize Israel as some kind of illiberal country. It's, it's, it's really, it's the shining light in the, in the Middle East. What was the question, though? <laughs> we'll move on to the next one. Um, a, a number of uh, the community members here have recently been exposed to a cooperative initiatives like Roots, Shorashim, and Gush Etzion. Um, and they want to know your opinion on uh, these type of cooperative projects that are happening in the West Bank. Um, Ishai, we'll start with you, and then Alan, for you. No opinion. No opinion. Okay. Ishai. I, 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 uh, I am not only am I for those things, I am involved in those things. I'm involved in many Arab-Jewish initiatives. Uh, I am taking Jews, Jewish groups, to Arab homes all the time to talk. The, the uh, Tamimi tribe in Hebron, the uh, Jabri clan in Hebron, I take Jews to them. I'm absolutely in favor of Arabs who respect the Jewish state, want to live in it, to be part of our story. I'm very much in favor of that. Uh, I'm very much in favor of helping them get out from, the, from under the thumb of incredible oppression. They live in North Korea while I live in South Korea. They are just constantly being drilled by the, by the jihad. They're beaten and they cannot, they cannot even be seen with me publicly. I'd love to tell a story about this. Can I tell a story? Quick Briefly. story? Okay. I'm, I'm in, I, I live in Eastern Jerusalem in a mostly Arab neighborhood, and I used to shop in these Arab stores close by, but, but the Arabs let me know that they have a problem with me shopping there because the Hamas and the Fatah are always watching them. And when I come into the store, it looks bad to them, and they'll come to the Hamas Fatah, will come to them and ask them questions afterwards, like, why were you nice to this settler or this Jew or Zionist? Anyway, so I stopped going there in order not to harm them. 
So I'm walking past the store one day of the store owner, his name is Daoud, and I see that he's got a poster of a fist smashing the Star of David. But this was too much for me to bear, as you could see in this conversation, sometimes it's too much. And I went into the store and I said, Daoud, what is this? You, 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 you have municipal rights here, you have you know, our roadways, our water, electricity, you have a life here, you have a beautiful house, not a poor house like Alan describes. You have, you have everything here. How is it that you put up this disgusting poster? So he starts to yell at me. He goes, you Jews, you settlers. And he starts giving me the worst time. Now, there were other people in the store. Meantime, when they hear him yelling at me, they clear out. Nobody wants a rumble, right? They just want to have a nice day. So they're out of the store. The minute everybody's out of the store, he comes right to my face and he says to me, Ishai, don't be stupid. I said, what? <laughs> like his whole tone changed and he just gives me, don't be stupid. I said, what do you mean? He goes, what does it say in Arabic on this poster? I said, I don't know. He says, it says, boycott Israeli products. Smash the Zionist state, boycott Israeli products. I go, okay. He goes, come here. Look at the fridge. What do you see? Tnuva and all Israeli products. Everybody knows I sell Israeli products. Why do I put this uh, poster here? It's my mezuzah, he says. It protects me from the Hamasnikim. I show them, no, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm against the settlers and the Jewish state. But everybody knows that I sell Israeli products. So I said to him, oh, you know, so... I'm like, why, doesn't the, why don't you just get Israel to protect you? Because your police will never protect me. You guys will never get into my village and found who would burn down my store or beat me. Your insurance companies aren't going to protect me. And being a right-winger and believing in sovereignty means that we will protect Dawood from the jihad. We'll make sure that he'll have his store. He can sell whatever products he wants. He doesn't have to pay protection or to put up a mezuzah so of, of hate. You gentlemen have done an extraordinary job of sharing your perspective, of keeping the tone civil, of handling questions, difficult questions from the audience. Um, I want to wrap up by giving you both an opportunity to ask a question of each other. Um, what can, you... can we wrap up afterwards? Because this, this is going to be a hard part, you know. <laughs> can we wrap up afterwards with something a little softer at the end? I'll, I'll, I'll throw us a softball after this. So, so uh, you should I get us started. Why don't you ask... Uh, Alan, a question, something you want to understand from him. Well, what bothers me is that you portray... Um, I, can you frame it as a question instead I of... want to understand, why is it <laughs> that you portray Palestinian, the two-state solution as a liberal option when it in fact will disempower liberal people and empower the, the most liberal people and empower the most illiberal people. And at the same time, you subtly delegitimize the Jewish people's return to the ancestral homeland, which is a tribe of people you returning. The question. And therefore, wh why is it that we settlers are the illiberal and the Palestinian jihad is the liberal in Okay, so help, uh, help Yishai understand how the two-state solution represents, uh, embodies I, liberal know, I values. I want to go to the second part of it first. The fact that I, I, I support the land and the people of Israel, I want them to be secure. Security is the very first criterion for me. Absolutely the very first. And we have to be strong. I served in the IDF. I served in a war in the IDF. Incidentally, that war taught me, and you talked about the situation in South Lebanon, where we went into South Lebanon to expel the, the PLO, and we did expel them. They went to, to Tunis. And what happened was that the Hamas went into the into the um, vacuum that was created there um, in our place. And what that taught me, as well as the fact that I lost some friends, some very good friends in that war, was that there is no military solution 
to this crisis. And at the end of the day, you don't make peace with your friends. You make peace with your enemies. And you don't get everything that you want, but you get everything that you need. And I don't need Hebron. I don't, I would love to have it. I would love to have, and I certainly want to have the right for you and others to go and pray in the cave of the Machpelah. And I certainly think that should be part of, of any solution, but I don't need it to achieve what, what I need out of the land of Israel, which is a place to express a Jewish identity, uh, self-determination, culture, language, religion, you name it, in a democracy that has a Jewish majority. Okay. And um, Alan, also please, uh, more in the form of a question than a statement, if there's something that you would like to ask of Yishai to better understand. Well, I, you know, I appreciate this debate. I don't always appreciate all the insinuations that have been made um, about me, but I think, you know, for the most the part, question. it has been a good debate. Um, um, and, you know, by, I, by the way, Alan, Alan and I, once, once I interviewed Alan beforehand, and I want you to know that we've had the conversation before, and so, you know, we're, we're already acquainted with one another, and I enjoy being on stage with him today, and I think he's a very, a very eloquent right, speaker for the other side. My question to you side. is, is there any one thing that I've said tonight that you can endorse and that you agree with? Absolutely. Uh, there's two. Um, one is uh, that I certainly uh, want you to know that as a settler and a right-winger, I too, and I, and I was trying to say that in my question, very much care about liberal values and care about other human beings. I absolutely want you to know that uh, you talked about brutality. That was not a word I used. I was going to talk about just being bad to the bad, but being good to the good, that's, I am in line with that. I'm telling you, I like Arab culture. I feel close to it. I live amongst it. I, uh, and what people don't know is that right-wingers are actually, in a lot of ways, close to Arabs, live with Arabs. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I just want you to know that that whole attitude about being uh, a liberal Jewish country with values, I'm there. The other thing that you said is building in other parts, other than Judea and Samaria. Yalla, the more the merrier. Believe me, I, want the, I am currently trying to buy a house in Israel, an apartment. It's too expensive because there's just not enough houses being built, and we have a, a shortage. Young people with me in the army tell me that they can't afford a house, so I am in full agreement with you that we should build in other places as well, certainly. So here is the softball. Here's the nechemta. Here's the comforting question to wrap this program up, I, I want to ask you both, what does it mean for you to be part of um, Yisrael, to, for you to be part of one people and to have these disparate opinions, these passionate uh, disagreements, and yet still be part of one people? Well, it's having the disagreements that makes us part of one people. You know, that. The disputes that, that, that the rabbis had in the time of the Talmud could be very bitter disputes, but they were said to be for the sake of heaven if they were conducted in a courteous and respectful manner. And I think that that's happened tonight. So, I, you know, I do feel a kinship with Ishai. I think we're both part of, of the Jewish people. And I think that, you know, out of our debate, maybe something um, can emerge. But I, but I think that, that, you know, it's such an important debate because it goes to the heart of the Jewish uh, future. And I, and, I, and I believe that there is no Jewish future without Israel. And so I think that it really depends. It, it, and, and to me, Israeli democracy is sacrosanct. I'm not prepared to make compromises on Israeli democracy. Um, and I'm willing to take risks to preserve it because it's so important. It's not whether we live alone, it's how we live.
Okay. Ishai. I fly to America and, and speak at gatherings like this because uh, I love Jews. I love my people. I love people who love my people also. And I really believe in a concept called uh, holding hands across the Atlantic. I think that uh, in America, you could shop at Target. In Israel, you are a Target. And you, you, have, you have these two continents that like tectonic plates can shift away from one another. And we have to hold hands across the Atlantic. And I'm always telling people, make Aliyah. But what I mean by Aliyah is take another step towards Israel, towards our, our joint venture, which is this greatest project of the Jewish people in 2,000 years. I always recommend to people, Friday night, wine from the land of Israel. Just to be in a room of, of, of people who love Israel, who care about Israel, that just warms my heart. And I, I too, that's another thing I guess that I agree with you, Alan, is that I do enjoy this conversation. I think it's very important. I also very much agree with what you said I'll just say it my way, can't sweep it under the rug. We got to talk about this. We got to talk about this. And those Jewish organizations that kind of feel uncomfortable and it's, these issues are divisive and therefore we won't talk about it, they're actually hurting our cause. We need to talk about these things. And I'm Israel Chai, when we're together and when we're strong. I want to thank both of our speakers tonight. Please join me in applause now. Really, this was an extraordinary conversation. You two modeled Machloket L'Shem Shemayim. You modeled disagreement for the sake of heaven. And I want to thank the audience. I want to thank all of you for coming out, for having the resilience to make it through this conversation. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed my debate with Alan Elsner in Beverly Hills, Temple Emanuel. Uh, he's from J Street. I'm the representative of, of Hebron, Hebron. And, uh, of course, check out Hebron.com. Check out all of our incredible content about this uh, city, this ancient city with the tombs of the fathers and the mothers there, really the roots of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Today I'm in my house in Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. I want to hear from you. Yishai at thelandofisrael.com. Yishai at thelandofisrael.com. Check out uh, my Facebook page or Twitter or all the other ways that you can connect to us, and Instagram, of course, as well. And we want to wish you only blessings, only good things, only amazing uh, connectivity to that past of the great exodus and to the future of the great redemption, which is all actually playing out for real here in the land of Israel. Hashtag real Israel. Hashtag awesome. Hashtag you're a part of it. All right, folks, stay tuned, stay strong, stay connected wherever you are. God bless you and shalom. The best place to stay in Jerusalem is at Windows of Jerusalem Vacation Apartments. Check out their website, www.windowsofjerusalem.com. They've got beautiful one, two, three, four bedroom apartments in the best location in the city center. The view, the location, plus the wonderful staff will truly make you feel at home in Jerusalem. Book your stay now at windowsofjerusalem.com. When I was growing up, I'd read the books in the second half of the Old Testament, and sometimes I would get a little bit lost in all those prophecies of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and so on. That all changed the day I stepped foot in the land of Israel. As I harvested grapes and olives and more on the mountains of Samaria, the words of the prophets came to life right before my very eyes. Today, you could be a part of this phenomenon too. I am Caleb Waller, and I'm inviting you to step into the pages of prophecy by joining us in Israel. Go to our website, that is hayovel.com, H-A-Y-O-V-E-L.com, to connect to this amazing opportunity.